This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. Hey movie addicts, welcome to Cinema Fix, your stop for the purest, highest quality movie reviews on the block. I'm Andrew Johnson, and I'm joined today by my fellow dealer, Monica Castillo. Hello, Andrew. How are you doing, Monica? I'm good. I guess I'm talking with my future self or my former self. I'm no longer sure. I'm stuck between the time streams. Oh, you are? I might be in a paradox. Not sure. Well, well let me know when you, when you figure out which Monica you are, because... If you're future Monica, I definitely want to ask you some questions, okay, that she might want to know the answers Right? To. I think I've also seen too many Doctor Who episodes. It's all good. Probably. Probably. This is part two of episode number 21 of Cinema Fix, focused on the movie Looper. So if you're looking for part one, you're listening to the wrong file. Stop listening to this now and go listen to part one. If this is your first time listening to Cinema Fix, uh, you should be aware that this is the show on Film Geek Radio devoted to discussion of mainstream blockbuster films, and each week we release an episode in two parts. The first part is a general, spoiler-free discussion, and the second part, which you're listening to right now, is the more in-depth analysis of the film, complete with spoilers. And it's designed to be listened to after you've heard part one. We're not going to bother repeating a lot of the general stuff we said in the first part about the premise and who's in it and stuff. We're just going to assume that you've seen the movie, or at the very least, listen to part one of this episode. Again, this is part two, so if you don't want to be spoiled, stop listening right now. Quick summary, Looper is the new film from Ryan Johnson. It stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as a looper, which is basically an assassin in the year 2044 who kills criminals that are sent back in time from 30 years in the future. Things take a turn for the loopy. Oh, <laughs> oh did you see what I did honey. there? You did? Yeah? No, that was awful. Yeah. Things take a turn for the loopy when one day he's assigned to kill his future self, played by Bruce Willis. Here's a clip. You know, you were the youngest looper I ever hired. You look ridiculous, they said. <laughs> Blunderbuss up to here, I remember they brought you in. I forget what it was for. Watch shop. Mm, that's, yeah. You rolled one of our fronts, a watch shop. And they had you, you know, you know, this kid, just like an animal. But you, you looked at me, your hair stuck to half your face, just one eye looking at me. I could see, like seeing it happen on the TV, the bad version of your life, like a vision. I could see how you'd turn bad. So I changed it. I cleaned you up and put a gun in your hand. Okay, Monica, in part one, we basically concluded that uh, we both liked the film, yep. and it does some interesting things with the time travel conceit, and we would both recommend it. I'm, I'm going to assume that if people are listening to this, they've seen the film, and I'm not going to explain what exactly is going on with all of the characters, because there are quite a few characters and concepts that weren't revealed in the trailer. Yep. But if you're listening to this, I'm going to assume that you've seen the movie. And when I say, when I talk about Sid, for example, uh, I'm, I'm not going to have to explain who he is. Um, I, I want to, at least for my side of this, this 
conversation. I I want to talk more about the philosophy of the film and the different themes running through it and, and kind of see what you took away from the film. And then if, if you have anything else you'd like to add, feel free to chime in at any time. Mm-hmm. Let me let me start off just by asking you this. In your opinion, what is this movie about? What is it trying to say? Uh, most science fiction films are allegories or symbolic of real life concerns and real life issues, and I think Looper is no different. What do you think this movie is is trying to say? I mean, I mean, obviously, we're just trying to guess at this point, unless you know exactly what the director was going after. Um, but from what I walked away with it, it was something more along the lines of knowing what the future may bring we should change i guess what we can for the better what i took away from it mostly this is from the end when joseph gordon levitt realizes um the circle of hurt that was in front of him that was just going to continue leading on to someone else getting you know someone else losing someone they love he decided to actually and himself. Now, I don't think it should be anything that dramatic or anything, but um, so it's part of, I guess, a larger sort of allegory uh, could be that to stop the circle of hurting each other. He takes away from the little boy, Sid, the only form of love he's ever known, and then Sid grows up and takes away the only form that Joseph Gordon-Levitt knows love, essentially. So they just end up hurting each other. So it's like if he never strikes the first blow. Yeah, it's this it's this endless cycle of violence. Yeah. And Ryan Johnson has said in interviews that the movie really is kind of about violence and how violence is in many ways a cycle mm-hmm. that goes back from one person to another. Yeah. And how we we kind of tend to blame other people for what happens to us in life. And, and we always are looking to blame people and attack them for, for what goes wrong in our mm-hmm. lives. And what struck me about Looper isn't just that it acknowledges that we live in a world in which these cycles of violence um, exist, but it, it sort of, in my mind, acknowledged that pop culture, and in particularly films and how people are socialized into viewing violence through film in many ways just perpetuates the problem. Um, It kind of reminded me a lot of Cabin in the Woods, Mm -hmm. which is another movie that you and I have talked about on the show, which deals heavily with ideas of violence and how movies and pop culture present violence Mm -hmm. as this positive force almost you know we're we're encouraged to watch people die for our own pleasure i don't know i'm i'm, I'm kind of rambling no it's really fine <laughs> well, well, i have a, i have a rebuttal um <laughs> so okay. you brought up cabin in the woods which i thought was really fun piece of actually looking at storytelling in so far as its use of violence this one i didn't feel it was so much about the actual art of storytelling or like we really clearly felt like this was about watching movies because it, you know, the two guys in the cabin of the woods was watching all the horror, the, the 
killings or so, they were clearly very disassociated from all of this. I don't feel like there's any sense of dissociation or sitting back, you know, someone else sitting back in uh, the safety of a movie theater or any sort of, you know, setting and watching the events unfold. This is very much like this is going on in the day-to-day lives of this sort of, yeah, this cyclical violence that just keeps perpetuating itself. So in that sense, I think it's a little bit more of a person-to-person more so than just a critique on how we watch or what we watch. Um, I, I think that Looper is trying to make a statement about movies. It's just not quite as blatant about it. Mm is Cabin in the Woods. Mm -hmm. And I've got an essay that's going to be published around the same time this episode is released that kind of delves into this a little bit more, and I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes. But basically, in terms of how I approach the film, are you familiar at all with the concept of the myth of redemptive violence? Of redemptive violence? Yes, redemptive. The myth of redemptive violence. Yes. I mean, that was a, it's a basically an idea that was formulated by a theologian named Walter Wink, who basically argues that, you know, going back as far as these ancient Babylonian creation myths, the dominant stories of our culture have basically posited this worldview in which violence is viewed as a necessary and healthy thing. Mm -hmm. If something chaotic happens, you can fix it through an act of violence. Walter Wink kind of argues that that's that's sort of the dominant myth that we see in the vast majority of uh, our culture today, whether it's movies, TV, sports, politics. I mean, there's this idea that if if you attack me... Mm -hmm. I can react violently in response in a way that almost nullifies that and and brings things back into balance. If Israel attacks Palestine, Palestine will attack Israel. If we're attacked on Mm 9-11, we will respond by invading Iraq and Afghanistan. And there's this idea that if you um, hurt me through violence, I can respond violently in turn and and that will somehow fix it yeah even though that doesn't make much sense when you state it that's the i I feel like to some extent we believe that i mean that's as a culture that's as far as like even just lawmaking goes like the code of hammurabi you know that sort of thing of just like if you steal we can cut your hand off you know it'll it'll fix the problem real quick (laughs) right Right. And I feel like that's the that's the message that is embedded in most movies today, especially action movies, mm-hmm. you know, where you'll have a hero like Die Hard, for example, with Bruce Willis, mm-hmm. in which, you know, he's uh, attacked by terrorists, so he proceeds to kill them all. Yeah. And that's viewed as a very heroic act. You know, yes, he's murdering them, but... It's for a good reason, right? Yeah. So it must be okay. They were ruining Christmas, guys. <laughs> yeah, they're ruining Christmas. Um, and I feel like Looper is trying to subvert that and challenge that idea. Mm-hmm. You know, even though it's set in the future, the, the guns are called blunderbusses. Yeah. 
and they're very primitive. And there's one character, Kid Blue, who's basically like an old school gunslinger, mm-hmm. you know, with this big revolver that he spins around. And he definitely references these old westerns and these old gangster films. I don't think as a means of paying tribute to them, but as a means of playing with those with the with the tropes of those genres. Mm-hmm. Those are very particular genres in terms of how they deal with violence. You know, typically there's a hero and a villain and the hero will kill the villain in the end mm-hmm. violently and that'll be celebrated. Yeah. And I think Looper's kind of trying to subvert that idea a little bit. Does that make sense? Yeah, it did. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure. I, I think he's I think what Ryan Johnson is doing is that he's calling upon these tropes of these different uh, mm-hmm. Hollywood formulas in order to critique them, if that makes sense. Okay. Okay. I could be wrong. I mean, Maybe that's, I'm wrong. That's the differ- that's the beauty of differing opinions. I mean, because I, I can't think of another reason why Ryan Johnson would want to have guns in the future that seem so primitive. I mean, they sort of explained that the blunderbuss, yes, it's absolutely primitive, and it's a, basically like a birdshot. It just, like, spits out bullets all over, and it's like, you can't miss with fear in a certain amount of range, but the moment you leave, what is it, like, the couple yards or so that you have, that's it. There's no shooting it. You can't get that um, target. That's true. It does serve a, a practical purpose. Yeah, but I also think to a, a certain extent, the the that idea of using quote unquote primitive weapons from like hundreds of years ago in a futuristic setting, I also think kind of underlies that main idea that comes across in the ending when Joe basically realizes that the violence of the present mm-hmm. is going to cause violence in the future there's a direct link between the violence inflicted now and the violence that will happen 30 years later i guess there's also that thing of um picking the gun for this in order as a like a sort of plot device in order to limit their ability this also could show like rank and file so you don't get the really cool gun until you're like a you know a big mob boss on campus or whatever because the blunderbusses are specifically for the loopers Right, and then you've got the Gat men yeah. who have those revolvers that are a little bit more accurate mm-hmm. and can also fire longer range. And then I guess only Jeff Daniels' character, Abe, has mm-hmm. access to the, the big machine gun. Yeah. Or no, no, well, Bruce Willis, I can't remember where he gets that from, but it's somewhere in, the, in, in their little base of operations. The what? I'm sorry. You know, like the semi-automatic machine guns or whatever that he that Bruce Willis uses to mow everybody down. Yeah, wasn't that when he he uh, stormed? Yeah, yeah, when he storms like the the compound or whatever. Like he gets captured, he gets brought in, and then he of course busts out of that, and then just starts mowing everyone down one by one, all by himself. Where, where, I can't remember where did he find that gun. I think he just was that Abe's gun or who whose gun was that, and why why were none of the henchmen using it? I mean, henchmen are only there to be shot, right? <laughs> right? That's why they're wearing this, the generic sunglasses and long black coats. It's like, it's a target practice. They're, right. they're like, personal features don't hardly get any show. That sequence was very interesting to me, just because... No, it's such a Willis moment. Like, that's that's really, like, 
especially if anyone's going there for Bruce Willis, they want Bruce Willis to kick some ass. And of course, like if he's got to, you know, deliver on like what you even brought up, the Die Hard movie, that's essentially the same thing that he did. He goes in by himself, mows down a ton of like, um, just almost anonymous, you know, bad guys. And of course, you know, ends up on the other side, like, huh? <laughs> right. And I, I, it, it feels so different from the other action scenes in the movie. With with all the other action scenes in the movie, the violence is often pretty brutal, pretty graphic. You know, you usually see all the blood spurting when people get shot in the chest, and and it it just seems a lot more graphic. But when when Bruce Willis, this old school action hero, shows up in the second half and grabs that machine gun, suddenly it's 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 like a completely different film and it's it's a bit more over the top, it's a bit more cartoonish, mm-hmm. it's a bit more exaggerated. It's sort of what we're used to seeing from Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting that uh Ryan Johnson chose to to kind of give the action scenes such a distinct feel and just kind of have a different tone depending on which character is involved. I think there's also something to be said about the age because a lot of the times where Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character is fighting bad guys or so, if he shoots them or at one time he like slams a trapdoor down on Kid, I think it might be Kid Blue's hand or one of the bad henchmen's hand at his apartment or so. And he actually says, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that's not anything Bruce Willis would do. So when Bruce Willis goes down and mows like 40, 50 guys and like barely cracks a smile or any sort of emotion at the end when he kills the big bad boss, that's totally his style. It's the more cool calculated, this does not phase him, whereas Gordon Lovitz it's more like a panicked sort of, oh my god, I just had to do that. Right, and again, I think you could argue that it, it is in some respects due to what uh, Ryan Johnson is trying to say about violence and different ways of approaching violence. Mm. Um, I, I think he's kind of commenting on how we're used to seeing violence depicted in the movies in the form of a Bruce Willis like character who will just go in and and mow everybody down and and save the day Mm -hmm. but he he contrasts that with joseph gordon levitt who's Mm -hmm. this new up-and-coming star you know could be the next batman for all we know Mm -hmm. and he who knows maybe joseph gordon levitt will be a big action star Mm -hmm. one day You you, you never know and i think Ryan Johnson is sort of trying to say that, you know, maybe the way we've depicted violence in the past isn't how we need to depict it in the future. Maybe there's a more realistic, maybe there's arguably a more ethical way of depicting violence that doesn't just sort of treat it as everyday entertainment, you know, and doesn't just treat it casually. Perhaps. I'm more in the camp that this was more just like a show of character for each of them on how they deal with under pressure situations. <laughs> or maybe the maybe the studio was just like, "Hey, you've got Bruce Willis in this. You need to to use him. There needs to be some sort of a uh, big rampage at the end." We have Bruce Willis and about 13 tons of buckets of blood. Have fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this. One of the concepts that the movie brings up is that idea of predestination versus free will and also nature versus nurture. Are we who we are 
inherently or is it our environment and how we're raised that ultimately helps us become who who, who we ultimately turn out to be mm-hmm. you know will sid grow up to be the rainmaker this horrible dictator mm-hmm. no matter what or is he only does he only grow up to be that because of this violent incident when he was a child but see, it's, that's a big question because he was also capable of violence before and we get the whole backstory of how he actually killed his aunt. It was because of his psychic ability. So who's to say that he wouldn't be able to become the Rainmaker after all, even if he grows up with his mom and with love and, you know, all the things that uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character thought that would keep him away from doing this the same harm to others. Right. Yeah, so it's a cute little nature versus nurture argument within the story. I, d- I did like that. Well, another interpretation I've heard is that maybe even after Joseph Gordon-Levitt kills himself, maybe uh, Sid will still grow up to be the Rainmaker just because he was traumatized by seeing his good friend Joe <laughs> kill himself. <laughs> <laughs> there is no winning. This kid will just never be happy. <laughs> but but no, I, I actually think I actually think that uh, in the film, I think Dr. Ryan Johnson comes down more on the side of, of nurture because he does show us that you can change the timeline. Mm-hmm. You know, Bruce Willis at first is killed, mm-hmm. but then Joe grows older and decides not to to have things go that way. Well, because of his wife who yes she right. actually steps in and cleans him up is what the is exactly what the term that he uses um there's also joe joseph gordon levitt's character is actually named joe he, when he's talking to sid the little child he's telling him about his uh, background because the kid asked and he says like how he was abandoned and how that the mob came in and adopted him so again it's like that whole thing of the environment changing oneself Right. The uh, Jeff Daniels character, Abe, mm-hmm. literally seems to believe that he saved Joe yeah. from a worse life. I, he says something th- to the effect of, I cleaned you up. And I put a gun in your hand. And I put a gun in your hand and I gave you a life. Yeah. Which is kind of ironic because in giving him a gun and making him a looper, he's basically just trapping Joe in what is essentially a 30-year-long act of suicide, Yeah, <laughs> if you think about it. It's, it's, it's not a new life. It's just yeah. a longer death. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's interesting that Joseph Gordon-Levitt can't remember his mother. That yeah. maternal force was not in his life. And as, and as a result, that's how he kind of got um, socialized into this, uh, this violent organization. Mm-hmm. So Ryan Johnson places a lot of emphasis on that idea of motherly love Mm -hmm. um, and the idea that a a, a female presence in your life can counteract the more violent masculine influences around you. So I think that the film is arguing that Sid Mm -hmm. will grow up to be good as long as his mother is there to help him. Well, God, after after the whole movie, Joe wipes himself off of the face of the earth. We kind of hope so. <laughs> right. That That's certainly what Emily Blunt's character, Sarah, seems to believe. She's, she does believe that, you know, with enough 
time and enough effort mm-hmm. she can help him to overcome his, his violent tendencies because essentially sid is no different from any other kid mm-hmm. he just th- th- these telekinetic powers are just raw potential essentially they're just they're just like any other talent mm-hmm. he could use them for good or for evil Hitler could have been an artist, or he could have grown up to be Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> or we would still be talking about him. <laughs> right, right. So Sid, you know, the fact that he has telekinetic powers isn't really the point. It's the, it's the fact that he could either be good or bad, no matter what his abilities are. Mm-hmm. And the film seems to believe that with a mother in his life, he'll be good. Although I'm sure all all the sociologists saw that it was like, oh, great. <laughs> right. I find it interesting that, you know, again, in the Emily Blunt character, mm-hmm. Sarah, you have this different attitude towards how to respond towards violence. You know, someone like Joe, I feel like if, if, if he saw, you know, someone get ripped apart <laughs> yeah. by these mysterious telekinetic powers his first impulse would be kill the kid yeah, or, you know, respond with violence. But Emily Blunt's response is to just kind of run upstairs, hide, wait for it to pass, mm-hmm. and then to basically just cradle him, yeah, forgive him, and say, you know, it, it's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can get through this. And he apologizes. He realizes that he's done wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of implied that she forgives him and, and they'll move on from this horrible incident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I found myself thinking, hmm, what if I myself or other people or, you know, the United States in general, what if we responded to threats of violence with with that response? You know, mm-hmm. what if we ju- what if when we were threatened or attacked, what if we weathered the storm and then forgave our enemies or reacted altruistically instead of with violence would that be any different Uh, it would be interesting or would we still wind up stuck in these cycles of violence where one person or one country attacks another and they attack back and Mm -hmm. an eye for an eye for an eye for an eye yep i don't know tough to say i think that's what the movie is trying to make us think about Mm. You mentioned earlier that old Joe is basically cleaned up mm-hmm. by this love in his life, this woman. Yes. And I find it interesting that he he's supposedly cleaned up by this woman, and young Joe, meanwhile, is trying to save up money. And he thinks that's going to be his salvation, and that's going to be the thing that helps him escape from this, this organization. Because isn't that the... Uh, the story we're told over and over in movies. I was thinking about it, and aren't there all these movies that basically show us criminals and thieves and and these violent people who are able to escape their life of crime Mm -hmm. either by falling in love or doing one last job to get the money they need to to escape? But it's always that one last job that gets them into trouble. Right, but then usually they overcome at the end and they get all the money and everything's good well unless it's reservoir dogs <laughs> well right unless it's reservoir dogs but but i'm talking about mainstream blockbuster films that seems yeah. that's that's usually the dominant arc and mm-hmm. i find it fascinating that again looper seems to be like uh-uh that's not how it works 
okay? It's great that you found the love of your life, Bruce Willis, but you can't escape your past that easily, and it's going to come back and hurt you. Yeah. And Joseph Gordon-Levitt has all this money that he saves up, but ultimately, uh, in one timeline, it runs out very quickly. Mm-hmm. And in the, the, the next timeline, he tries to use it to basically uh, buy off one of the Gatmen mm-hmm. that comes to the house. And he says, you know, I'll give you all my money if you let us go. And it, it doesn't work. Yeah. He can't do it. So I found it interesting that uh, Ryan Johnson is basically like, uh, those those usual Hollywood tropes where... Everything is fine with because of either love or money. Mm-hmm. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> you can't escape the cycle of violence that easily. I guess that's a, another thing is that the violence does ultimately claim his money, the love of his life, and ultimately his life. Right. It's all consuming. Yeah, he, the, there really is no escaping it. I mean, the film seems to be arguing that once you're you're in this cycle... It doesn't stop. It, it, it takes this very almost Buddhist attitude mm-hmm. towards morality and that idea of karma and the idea that it, once once you're violent, that violence is going to come back to hurt you sooner or later. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gonna it's gonna ripple out and affect the future. Yeah. And the ending of the film, it's so completely different from the vast majority of of Hollywood films, which is why I think it's so subversive and so unique because usually in a hollywood film joe would find some way to make this all work out yeah you know he would probably point the gun at bruce willis Mm -hmm. kill bruce willis and then everything is supposedly fine yeah you know he can live with uh sarah and sid and they'll all live happily ever after and there'll be a little family and that would be the happy ending yeah but looper's kind of like no you can't have that. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what ultimately, I guess, that's the way you close the circle, is that it doesn't even start to begin with. Right. It's, it's basically saying that there's no way to, to win through violence. You can't conquer the other power and, and defeat them, mm-hmm. ultimately. If you want to stop the cycle, the only thing you can do is sacrifice yourself, mm-hmm. which is a kind of a radical idea. If you stop to to think about it, that idea that if you are attacked, mm-hmm. if, if instead of responding violently, if if you know that that's just going to result in another violent response where more people are going to get hurt, it's better just to take it, and it's better just to die or to sacrifice yourself for the for the greater good. I feel like most people wouldn't normally consider that that just flies in the face of everything that we're brought up to believe about how the world works yeah i guess that that would <laughs> i don't know but i i'm kind of rambling what i mean what else did you take away i mean from there's the film? so many tangents you can go on i mean the film doesn't really bog you down with all of this and it's not you know asking you to specifically concentrate on all the stuff you could easily just go in and just watch the action sequences find find the story interesting and not even give two thoughts about it after you leave the theater. But, you know, obviously the fun for us is like looking at the subtext and finding out more what the director meant and to portray in the movie. Right. And and I feel like Ryan Johnson, to a certain extent, wants you to, to try and look a little bit deeper just because he's. it seems like he's working really hard 
to not do the same thing that we're used to seeing. Yeah. You know, he's he's deliberately trying to subvert these ideas and these tropes that we've seen a million times before, mm-hmm. you know, and do something different. Maybe he just wants to do it for creative reasons. I would argue he probably wants to do it for philosophical, ethical reasons. You know, for whatever reason, he I think he does want you to stop and think about what's what's going on. Mm-hmm. What was the reaction uh, of people to the ending when you when you saw the film? Uh, there were plenty of gasps in the audience. I don't think a lot of people were expecting that. Did people seem happy with it and satisfied? And um, you know, I'm not quite sure if they were they were exactly happy with it because I think a few people wanted him to just you know be able to, again to have that happy ending to have that sort of catharsis or whatnot coming to reconciliation with the whole past and you know realizing the error of his ways but no i don't know i mean it was for me it was great it was a great twist i was not expecting it i enjoyed that because it again it's not something you commonly see i enjoyed it too but i i i agree i'm not sure what other people felt about it. it, it felt kind of me. It to, to me in the theater that, that I saw it in, mm-hmm. the vibe after the movie when the credits started to roll was just kind of cold. It seemed like people didn't quite know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, because it is it is so new. And I was thinking about it, and I realized you know we want Joe to have the happy ending, and we want him to to realize all of these things. But if you think about it, he does change Mm -hmm. over the course of the film. He does have an arc, and he does have this larger realization at the end about his role Mm -hmm. in in, in these events. And it was fascinating to me that the film basically is arguing that Joe will never change Mm -hmm. who he is. He's a violent person. And even though Bruce Willis's character, Old Joe, thinks that this woman saved him and kind of redeemed him through love, he's still the same violent person yeah. he was before, mm-hmm. once, once she's gone. He has no problem going back in time and kicking ass once mm-hmm. again. Yeah. So did she really change him? Did she question. really clean him up? I would argue, no, not really. I think the most of the thing that he was talking about cleaning him up was like getting him off the drugs because I think that was another thing. Oh, right. Is that That's he, true. They show him that he was really hooked on these special kind of eyedroppers that let him hallucinate and stuff. That's that's another element that I thought was clearly referencing movies, this idea that you can be addicted to things visually. Mm. And, and this drug can be administered to you through the eyes mm-hmm. and... You'll you'll just kind of be hooked on it. Yeah, and I, th- I I think it was great how Joe's growing conscience and his growing realization about this cycle of violence parallels him going through withdrawal and sobering up. Mm-hmm. I think that was a really effective parallel. I I do have one complaint about the film and one element that I do think could be removed entirely. Oh, which was? Kid Blue. <laughs> that that character. Was he really necessary? Yeah, he was kind of grating on my nerves. And it was funny because I was talking about, talking about the movie with a friend today. And he just kept mentioning, oh my god, there's a character named Kid Blue. Like, what the heck? And I guess that's just, maybe that was just a little too campy. 
Well, it's a reference to a to a western from the seventies. Uh huh. Called Kid Blue, and also Noah Siegel, the actor. Mm-hmm. Kid Blue is his nickname in real life. Oh well. Apparently, <laughs> so they just sort of incorporated that in, into the movie. Well, now it's official. Yeah, <laughs> and I was thinking about it, and I and I realized, you know what? You could probably cut that character entirely, mm-hmm. and it really wouldn't change the film a whole lot. Other than you know, it makes him like sort of the unwanted son f- figure for the father figure of the uh, Jeff Daniels character, the mop boss, because he's always trying to please him, never can. Just Gordon right. Levitt, Joe is you know, efficient, and he's cool with the boss, you know, the boss, him, he have history, man, but not this kid, this kid, no matter how much hard he tries, and it almost, I can't, I don't remember if they say it explicitly, or if it's just, you know, insinuated, but there's, you know, he's trying to make him proud for a reason, and I don't know if it's because he's his actual dad, or if it's just, you know, I just want to make you proud, Pops. <laughs> well, I, I, I felt like the, the more analytical side of my brain was thinking that the only reason this character is in here is to sort of make a, a statement about how guns and how violence are viewed as almost a rite of passage mm-hmm. and as a sign of masculinity. Oh, yeah, when they take his, uh, takes it away. Right. I mean, when we first meet Kid Blue, he's got this massive revolver that he's spinning between his legs. Mm-hmm. And then later on in the film, uh, Bruce Willis points out to Joseph Gordon-Levitt, hey, I know you've got that little gun between your legs. So clearly, Ryan Johnson is acknowledging that guns can be viewed as a phallic symbol to a certain extent. And as this Obvious. extension... Right, and and as this extension of masculinity, so Kid Blue to me seems like the, the the type of person who's been socialized, as one could argue, uh, we all of us are in real life, mm-hmm. into believing that guns and and violence are this kind of noble thing that will that'll make you a man, mm-hmm. you know, that'll make you strong, you yeah, know, that that are that'll help make your dad proud of you. That was the only reason I could think that that character would be there, would be to introduce that idea. I guess so. My my theory on his existence would be like, it's more like the Mr. Smith to Neo, Agent Smith, sorry, from The Matrix. Um, Right. So there always has to be like the one bad guy that really stands out because Jeff Daniels' character really never leaves the office. This kid goes everywhere for the guy. Like he's really out to get Joe. But you know, he's inefficient. And I, th- I thought it was interesting that even after Abe is killed, mm-hmm. you know, everybody is is just massacred, mm-hmm. except for Kid Blue, who survives, and he still wants to go after young Joe. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself, why? And it's because he feels like that's what he has to do in order to, to be a man, mm-hmm. you know, in order to come into his own. Uh, it doesn't matter that Abe is dead he still has to do it he still wants to please this figure who's no longer alive or you could argue that he's trying to cause another time paradox Mm -hmm. in which you know if he kills joseph gordon levitt he'll never become bruce willis and will never kill abe could be so again he's trying to uh kill someone as a means of saving someone else 
Yeah. But then you get the thing that the only reason why he did that, I guess, would be because the killing happened in the first place. That's why time travel gets so complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's another loop. Yeah. <laughs> another paradox. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything else you want to say about Looper and what it's trying to say or how it's put together? Anything that you found interesting? I feel like I've done a lot of talking and a lot of rambling. I mean, so. yeah, like I said before, it's really easy to just go down tangents on, on the movie. No, not anything that we haven't covered yet. <laughs> we we really dug around. All right. Well, um, as I mentioned, uh, I, I will be publishing an, an essay about Looper. Look for that in the show notes to this episode. I think that'll wrap it up for this episode on Looper. We would love to hear what you think. Mm-hmm. Am I totally off my rocker? Am I looking at this film the wrong way? Write in. Let us know. You can email us at cinemafix at filmgeekradio.com or comment on the website at www.filmgeekradio.com. You can also subscribe to the show through iTunes. So if you like this episode, please write us a review. We love your feedback, and it would also help get the word out about the show. You can also donate to us through the website. That really uh, helps us out a lot. That helps us keep the network running, and it helps us develop new content. We really appreciate your help. Mm-hmm. Monica, where can people find you online? People can find me on the Twitters. <laughs> on Twitter, um, I'm mcasty movies that's m-c-a-s-t-i movies yes and you can also find some of my work at bofka.com that's b-o-f-c-a.com it's the boston online film critics association and you can also find me on dig boston and the boston phoenix and starting this week at bench magazine I'm Andrew Johnson. You can find some of my writing at filmgeekradio.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash writerandrew. If you do follow me, be sure to send me a message and let me know that you're a listener, and I will follow you back. And don't forget to tune in to Cinema Fix next week when we'll be discussing Frankenweenie or Taken 2 or something else. We haven't decided yet. We'll, nope. we'll figure it out. There's got to be something good out next week, right, Monica? That's that's the hope. All right. Well, I'm Andrew Johnson. And I'm Monica Castillo. And have fun this week getting high on cinema. Like Joseph Gordon-Levitt did in Looper. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!